Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 54 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Today, we step back and take a look at the recently released Telia Company FCPA Enforcement Action. To say it was stunning undergirds the word stunning as it is the largest FCPA fine in the history of the world ever, coming in at $965 million. It had the largest amount of profit disgorgement, $457 million. It was a case involving bribery at literally the highest levels of the company, where the CEO has now been personally indicted for authorizations of bribery and corruption. It's a fascinating case to look at. It has lots of lessons for the compliance practitioner, and Matt and I take a look at what all of this might mean in the context of not only the Trump administration, but the Sessions Justice Department, and opine on where FCPA enforcement may be going forward. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello again, this is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Matt has survived the uh, TEC Workiva event from last week and is now back into the weeds where we are going to take a look at what I think is just a stunning FCPA enforcement action, Matt, the Telia Company uh, FCPA resolution. Uh, it came in at $965 million total fines and penalties. It's going to be split between uh, three countries, uh, the United States, uh, Sweden and Switzerland uh, it had the largest uh, profit disgorgement of all time, $457 million. It mm-hmm. um, had the uh, has three executives uh, from Telia, uh, former executives, I should say, who were involved in the bribery and corruption, have been indicted criminally in Sweden. It is really just a stunning case, one of several major outstanding FCPA cases, that the public was aware of, and I thought it'd be a good chance for us to uh, you for you to decompress first of all from your flow rider experience, but maybe take a deep dive into an enforcement a- in action. We haven't had the chance to do that in some time, so for that somewhat long-winded introduction, uh, welcome. Hi, yeah, well, all the good stuff happens when I'm not paying attention to FCPA because there we were talking about new accounting standards and SOX compliance at the Workiva event, and boom. I mean, this this is a huge thing that the Justice Department dropped on us last week. So what were some of your initial impressions, Matt? Well, um, I guess, you know, at the end of the day, I was trying to think of what are the lessons compliance officers could learn from this. And really, the most impressing lesson from all of it isn't so much a lesson at all. When you think about how did Telia get into this situation, like this was naked bribery and everybody knew it. That is what got this company really crucified by the Justice Department. Um, as, as I understand the details of it, they were entering Uzbekistan, which I have actually heard of in the, the former Soviet Republic. Um, but the CEO at that time of Telia was well aware that they had to bribe the daughter of the sitting president of Uzbekistan. Like, you you want to say that this means you should perform more due diligence. Like, what due diligence is even necessary for you to know that doing this kind of 
bribery payment to the daughter of the president, like that, that requires no due diligence. Uh, you know, a, a house plant would know that this is a CD CD transaction that is going to wind up coming back to bite you on the rear end. Um, more than anything else, I keep coming back to that, that I don't know that any compliance program would have been able to prevent something like this because the CEO and other senior executives at that time, and I know that they're all gone now, but the senior executives at the company, like they decided this is what we want to do. And we know exactly that what we're doing, we know the sin we're committing and we're going to do it. Okay. Uh, so the more than anything else, I was just struck by the, the, the naked amorality of this whole action and you know, how on earth did they think this would end up anywhere other than where we are here? You know, Matt, you bring up a, a really interesting point. Maybe I could uh, run down this thread because I don't think we've really gone in this direction before. We typically um, will look at enforcement actions and as you uh, note, try to um, either read the tea leaves or interpret or deign lessons learned from the compliance practitioner, how you might be able to use that information, go forward. We might critique the enforcement action um, from our perspectives. But here we have really a enforcement action on a continuum of, um, let me see if I can articulate this correctly, anti-corruption enforcement, but it's because, you're absolutely right, because it was so blatant, because it was literally the chief executive, Lars Nyberg, who has been indicted criminally in Sweden uh, over this, uh, was involved in this, um, you probably, you're right, a, a compliance officer, a compliance program, a chief compliance officer uh, would not be able to impact this. When you have the company itself and the CEO and the boards of directors approving these payments, you to to really stop this sort of behavior, I think that really is the role of the government and with a significant enforcement action. And uh, as of yet, no individuals have been prosecuted in the United States, although, as I said, three have been indicted in, in uh, Sweden. But you have the $965 million, which is the highest FCPA fine ever. Uh, Siemens was $1.6 billion, but that was split equally between the United States and Germany. So we have the number one FCPA case ever. And if you have this sort of uh, blatant corruption, then you, you have to have a, a full-blown uh, government response, and that's uh, what I saw with this enforcement action. So as you go down the continuum of bad conduct, as it gets worse, it really will take the government to stop that, not a compliance program or compliance commentators or a compliance practitioner. I I fully agree. And when you delve into the details of exactly what Telia did to violate the FCPA, I I don't know that they could have violated the criminal statutes uh, of the law more effectively than they did. Every way that you could violate that part of the law, they did. Um, and they did it at the highest levels. And to give credit to the Trump administration, which I will not give them credit on many things because they don't deserve it on many things, but they have said that in egregious cases of anti-bribery abuses, they are still going to try to throw the book at people. This was an egregious case. Um, not just at the, you know, somebody at the high level wanted to pay a bribe, somebody at the high level agreed to pay an enormous bribe and to pay it and violate the law every which way that they could. I don't know that uh, the CEO was fully aware of how effectively they were violating the law, but clearly he didn't give a damn. You know, this is what they needed to do to get into Uzbekistan. So, I mean, you can say that 
this is this is Jeff Sessions at his word, where he said he will enforce the FCPA where there is egregious abuse. That's what it was. That's what happened. Um, you know, I'm somewhat curious to the lack of a monitor or self-reporting, which I found unusual for something so egregious. Uh, the scope of cooperation among all sorts of different agencies hither and yon is quite impressive. Um, you know, we can pick apart that too, but you know. It goes back to what you and I have talked about before, that perhaps we're not going to see that much of a difference in FCPA enforcement. And I don't know that we have since the Trump administration has come in, um, you know, or certainly not any walking away from enforcement like some naysayers, including somewhat me back in November, like we thought. So I would hope and maybe my hope is misplaced or even forlorn that the days of these types of egregious, uh, just intentional violations of the FCPA are gone, and we've now moved into an era of, of enforcement of, of more procedural or uh, control violations or control override, something along those lines. Um, we've obviously still got Walmart to get through and you know perhaps some others, but if we don't have any more uh, at this level and at this amount, um, perhaps we will not see a, a finer penalty this large again. You know, th- that's a great point. And I was wondering about it because I was trying to do the math and go through the history. Like, how many more of these do we have out there? Um, I can remember that you know, we would see what were back then relatively large enforcement actions in the mid to late 2000s against U.S. companies. And that seems to have faded as I think they learn their lessons. Now, all of this misconduct here happened 07 to 2010, and we see some foreign companies where that seems to be the time period where I think they were finally waking up to it. Um, but yeah, you know, those big enforcement actions were like the CEO was in on it. The CEO knew what they were going to do, knew the amorality of it, and threw his or her weight behind it. Um, where the rest of what we see usually are like in this CDM Smith case earlier this year and Lindy and whatnot, these, you're right, these are more procedural or lower level, some intermediary, some subsidiary thought that they were going to do themselves a favor. And, you know, but that's, that's a much smaller thing. That's an order of magnitude less than what we saw here with Talia. And yeah, I, I don't know how many more are out there. Like who at this point didn't get the memo, who'd be able to pull off this kind of bribery, by the way. You know, this is a very large scheme, and I, I don't know. Maybe we're going to see the end of these things. Well, and it brings up something that you have uh, touched on, although not in this context, but you've certainly explored, which is uh, the regulatory nature or the difference in a regulatory and a prosecutorial nature of FCPA enforcement and focusing on the SEC and how they perhaps are more uniquely suited to regulate and provide um, guidance or, or written protocols around their regulatory efforts all, all leading to perhaps a compliance defense. So I can I can really see that laying out from an enforcement perspective if these massive cases are not a thing of the past, but very few of the past, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That, I think, would make some sense. I think that would be in step with what the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, would like. I don't think he is anti-FCPA. He is anti-FCPA that feels like we're hitting ourselves in the head with a hammer. And 
some companies deserve to be hit with a hammer. Telia in this instance might be one, but beyond that, you know, if they could lay out clear guidance to companies about how to avoid the books and records violations, how to have strong financial processes. First off, I think companies would like that, not just because they want the books and records violations and the penalties there to go away, but they would love to have a clear sense of how should our financial processes work. Because once they work that way, we're also very close to compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley and all sorts of other financial compliance concerns that are very difficult. So if they could get some sort of safe zone that they know that this is what can pass muster. I think, you know, companies would like that. Um, you know, I still worry about how would we distinguish between a paper compliance program and a real compliance program. But a lot of the paper compliance is the criminal misconduct that the justice department would enforce. You know, it's hard to have a paper-based books and records compliance program because the money's the money. The money is always going to be there. And it, becomes pretty clear if you have no books and records and financial processes that becomes apparent pretty quick uh, and then you've got other problems that you know you, your auditor might flag you years before an FCPA issue ever reaches the SEC's attention so I, I I'm a, a, I'm open to hearing what Jay Clayton and his cohorts might think about uh, a more affirmative defense, at least for the books and records violations. On the criminal side, I'm hard-pressed to see how that might play out, but you know, let's see where it would go. So, Matt, I did think there were some lessons that we could uh, draw upon for the compliance practitioner, even uh, acknowledging that the obvious and blatant and intentional bribery and corruption engaged in Batilia uh, during the time in question and what struck me was the uh, no, the detail the Department of Justice went into on the bribery schemes. And uh, the reason I thought that was significant for our listeners and compliance practitioners is it really gives you a roadmap to understand how uh, bribes can be paid through either shell corporations, sham contracts, or you know the old-fashioned way with cash out of a trunk, and that it allows uh, the compliance practitioner to understand better or perhaps uh, in greater detail would be a better way to phrase it, um, fraudulent transactions. Yeah, and I think that it is good to lay that out because a lot of compliance officers are still more, you know, frankly, they're lawyers, and you can structure deals the right way, but to unravel them, you really do need a good forensic sense about you. Um, you know, could an audit firm unravel all of this? I'm sure they could. But ultimately, if you want to catch this yourself, your company is going to need some sort of internal forensic ability and awareness of what a sham transaction is going to look like. And yeah, that's, I, I mean, Tom, when you said the good old fashioned way of just cash in a trunk or a paper bag, I I don't actually know how often does that happen anymore. I think it is a lot of these complex transactions designed to be opaque. That is why you see FinCEN and other regulatory agencies here clearly leaning on corporations to do more about knowing your customer and bringing that out to light. Um, in theory, that is all good. In the practice here of the Telia case, I mean, you lost me when they said president's daughter uh, right there. 
everything around it. It's going to stink. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care how complex or opaque the paper trail is. You know, if she is going to be involved, then of course you should be raising extra questions. Um, The other thing that struck me was just in relative terms, the sheer size of this bribe. I looked up the GDP for Uzbekistan in 2009, which roughly when these bribes happened, $330 million in bribes is equivalent to roughly 1% of Uzbekistan's GDP at the time. And for anybody who's wondering, well, what does that really mean? Here in the United States, that would be like paying a bribe of $150 billion (laughs) relative to our much larger economy. This was a huge amount of money. Everybody could see the sort of life that she led. This was a former Soviet Republic. Everybody knew that they were as corrupt as the day is long. Um, like it, I, I will always keep coming back to that as like, that's the period in the sentence. Everything that happened after that was of course going to wind up being corrupt and lead us to where we are here many years later talking about it today. Well, in the couple of other aspects of this case, uh, a related aspect is that <clears throat> Both the United States and uh, Switzerland have frozen or obtained monies, uh, frozen money or obtained money through the U.S. has through the Kleptocracy Act. And in the United States, um, they obtained uh, judgments against 310 million. Well, in Switzerland, they got judgments for 820 million. Now, part of that is because uh, ill-gotten gains typically were hidden in Swiss bank accounts. So there would make sense. There's more money there. But that's over, you know, a billion dollars. And if we take your... um, that's now 3% of the uh, Uzbekistan yeah. gross national product. So it's just getting better and better. You know, I, I also, I can't help but notice. So the woman in question here, her name is Gulnara Karimova. And if anybody's curious, Google her and see what she looks like. She's a glamorous and striking woman, clearly has very expensive tastes. And while she's in her mid-40s, Still, she bears more than passing resemblance to Ivanka Trump, who is, I think, about 10 years younger than her. But, I mean, you just you could see from a mile away that dealing with the daughter of the current president was, of course, going to be problematic. Um, you know, I suppose it's heartwarming to everybody that we actually did this enforcement action. I mean, it took a long time, but we always say that Everybody agrees that individuals who are committing bribery should be prosecuted. And then ultimately, that's what's happened here. She's under house arrest. Her her fortune has been seized here and there. I, I don't know how much more money she might have, but I assume she might have some. But like you can't argue with this FCPA enforcement being legitimate. And I know there are some people who will say FCPA enforcement is heavy handed, but this was not out of the norm for the gravity of what went on here. So a couple other things I'd like to uh, to observe, Matt. The first was the true international cooperation in the investigation and, and appears in also in the enforcement action. But the Department of Justice credited the Swedish Prosecution Authority, uh, the Office of Attorney General in Switzerland, and, and criminal investigative authorities in Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, France, Ireland, the Isle of Man, Latvia, Luxembourg, Norway, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom, and the SEC had even more, uh, including the distinguished group entitled Corruption Prevention and Combating Bureau in Latvia, the mm-hmm. um, Office of Economic and Environmental Crime in Norway, and the 
Dutch Open Bar Ministry, uh, British Virgin Islands uh, coming in for an assist, the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, the Bermudan Monetary Authority, the Cyprus Securities and Exchange Commission, in addition to the IRS and even Homeland Security had a part in all this. So truly international in scope, which is um, what we've been hearing now for some time from both the SEC and DOJ, and I think that will portend uh, the wave of future investigations of extensive international cooperation. But the other thing was <clears throat> the um, uh, there was a discount, actually, and the company got credit. Yes. Uh, 25% credit off the minimum sentencing, uh, bottom end of the minimum sentencing guidelines for their extensive uh, uh, extraordinary cooperation and extensive remediation. As you correctly noted, no monitor. Uh, they did not self-disclose, so we don't know how it came to the attention of the uh, Department of Justice. But still, uh, they got credit, uh, even with the $365 million paid. You know, I assume that that is some sort of subtle reminder to the rest of the corporate world out there that had Telia self-disclosed, they might have gotten even another discount. But, you know, calling out the discounts they did get and then the fact that they did not self-disclose, which is the cornerstone now of cooperating with the Justice Department on FCPA. I mean, I assume that's that's one element to their thinking. And back to all of the international cooperation, um, clearly... The bribes themselves and the shady transactions and the companies that were being sold and whatnot, like the, it really gets down to know your customer exercises. That's why all of these authorities, I'm assuming, were involved is because we were trying to trace who had the money flowing here, there and everywhere in these sham companies. And I could envision that that is going to become the larger challenge for cooperating with regulators and frankly, just for regulators themselves trying to figure out how do we unravel this? It's not who paid what to what beneficial owner. It's like, what was the circuitous route around the world and all of the sham transactions and shell companies and who are the real beneficial owners? Like this is going to be a gigantic know your customer exercise. And my favorite detail about the international cooperation was that at least on one Justice Department document. They listed the Isle of Man and thanked them two separate times. So <laughs> extra help from the Isle of Man, I guess. But in the same paragraph, started with Isle of Man at the beginning and then thanked them again at the end. Well, uh, perhaps the Isle of Man's reputation has, uh, uh, um, as a money laundering haven has changed somewhat, and they deserved a, not only a pat on the back, but an attaboy as well. I guess so. So, Matt, it really was just a, a fascinating case with uh, even at the the craven blatantness of, of the uh, enforcement action, excuse me, of, of the conduct. And I think uh, there's still quite a bit of lessons to be learned from the compliance practitioner. I may, uh, we may have to pick up on this thread about the different types and levels of enforcement um, at a later podcast because I was really fascinated when I was listening to your discussion. It really triggered something. So we may have something there, but uh, um, kudos to the Department of Justice and SEC. Uh, and as you correctly noted to the Sessions uh, Department of Justice and the Trump administration for stepping forward and continuing to uh, enforce the FCPA for cases that certainly deserve it. Indeed. Well, Matt, until next time, uh, this has been a lot of fun and uh, look forward to uh, going into the weeds again. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. 
If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only podcast which takes a deep dive into a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. If you have any questions, you can contact Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I'm happy to announce next month's One Month to a Better Compliance Program series will focus on business ventures, including mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, distributors, team agreements, franchises, and all forms of business ventures that a company may engage in overseas. Next month's episode is sponsored by the Volkoff Law Group. I hope you will check it out. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will join us again. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.